all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Legal one. The package is being delivered. So, Jeffrey Lewis, will you do an experiment with me? Okay. Uh, and this is the show, by the way, now. Um, I usually do this... I know. I usually do this big, bombastic opening for this show, which is cyber hello out there on the internet. Um, but I've been thinking lately that I like, especially for what we do, is like a more intimate chat show. And I think like a softer opening may work better. Um, so we're going to try that this time. One of the joys of that... Uh, is that I get to force the guest to introduce themselves. Okay, can I do it in like the like the kind of calm, quiet, national public radio voice? Please, please do. Hmm, okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Lewis. I'm a professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and I work at something also called the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at said same institute. And you've got a new podcast out called The Reason We're All Still Here. I do. It's a narrative documentary style podcast. So instead of the traditional podcast like this one of two white guys talking to one another, <laughs> we we actually went out and interview people, some of some of whom might might not be men. It's very strange. So is this a second season? Or is this, it's going into the same podcast feed as the other show, right? That's right. It's the technically the third season of The Deal, but it has a new name and it's probably unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. Although it's, it comes from the same place of despair. Yes, but um, I would argue that, you know, you and I are of slightly different generations, We've both grown up with these swords of Damocles over our head. Uh, nuclear devastation, climate change, microplastics. Uh, but this show, the one that you've just uh, you've released, I think, as we're talking, three episodes, two episodes. Yeah, it's called The Reason We're All Still Here. The PR people insist that I say that at least three times in each podcast. So nice. that's one. Uh, no, that's two. Well, you have to say it three times. Okay. That's right. How many times... I? I think I think I get a treat for each time I get you to say it. Nice. All right. Well, I've done it twice now, so that's two treats for you. Cocktails, I think. Um, but I would say it's an answer to uh, like a feeling of existential doom to doomerism. Um, I kept I came away from each episode feeling surprisingly hopeful, which is not normally how I feel on these topics. I mean, that was the idea. So we had we had done two seasons of a podcast that looked at the Iran nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. And the first season was written when the Iran nuclear deal was like still alive. And it was an explanation of how it came about um, trying to tell the stories of the people who did it rather than, you know, walk people through the text, which is pretty boring. The second season started to wrestle the question of like, why can't we have nice things? And why are we like this? And it was kind of kind of gloomy, I guess. Um, and so this season, we wanted to take a step back. And it's not like we forgot about the Iran nuclear deal. It's still on our mind. But we wanted to sort of ask this question of like in a, in a moment where governments can't or won't work together to 
solve the problems that are likely to get us killed, not just nuclear, but, you know, kind of everything. Um, we wanted to tell the stories of people who pitched in, you know, who made what we think of as the government's business, their own business. Um, and whether it was by shaming governments or setting a good example, you know, tried to make the world like a slightly better place. I was about to call these um, existential risks, and I think they are, but, uh, but there's something um, about the word existential that makes me, that feels too abstract, and a lot of these problems feel very real and grounded to me. Yeah, it's like a super fancy word for we're all going to fucking die. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's like the the terror is so overwhelming and big that you have to hide behind a, a Tencent word. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but what can you walk me through some of the stuff that you talk about this season? Like, what are the things that we're afraid of? Yeah. So we we do a little bit of stuff that's still nuclear because I'm I'm me and that's my my gig. And, and I, you know, struggled <laughs> to leave it too far behind. So we open with what I think is a really cool story in in the middle of the Cold War uh, when there was a big dispute about um, whether the U.S. could verify an arms control treaty with with the Soviets. Um, American scientists actually went and got to, like, put a gamma ray detector next to a Soviet nuclear weapon. So there's some of that. But then, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff. So we've got an episode on uh, biological risks, which, you know, after the pandemic is a thing. Uh, we got an episode on space debris. Um, we have an episode on environmental crime, which is not existential, but sucks. Yeah. I mean, not the episode. The episode doesn't suck, but cr- environmental crime sucks. I haven't listened to that one. Tell me about it. So that's pretty wild. It's a it's a pair of stories. We got a little arty, so not every episode is organized around a single story. Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a pair of stories about people who are private citizens who get involved in uh, solving environmental crimes. So half of the episode is about a group of people who look at satellite images to detect illegal fishing off the coast of uh, North Korea. Um, Inspired, by the way, by this crazy scenario of these ghost ships, basically these empty Korean fishing, North Korean fishing vessels were washing up on Japanese shores and like, like there was no one on them, like the fishermen had all died. And it, it turns out they were basically they were people who had been displaced by Chinese fishing in North Korean waters um, to this crazy story about this group that does like undercover sting operations uh, to detect uh, or at least to track, um, uh, you know, poaching of, of different species. And that that's a wild story because um, I really liked that group because you know, normally when you like focus on poachers, you're focusing on the people who are actually doing the poaching, who are themselves a kind of marginalized, vaguely victimized group of people, right? They're some of the world's poorest people, and they're doing bad things because they're desperate. Um, but they're the easiest people to catch. And what that environmental group did was they tried to actually, like, work up the smuggling network to find, it, like, the cartels and the other, the big the big fish, uh, see what I did there, uh, who were involved in 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 poaching so it was good it was like putting the moral focus where it needed to be on the people who are actually getting rich off this stuff as opposed to you know poor fishermen who are doing a bad thing for just a little extra money when you sit down to make a list of uh, existential dreads uh, that you plan to cover how do you narrow it down you know you 
you come up with a list of the things that scare you, and we covered those. So for me, it's nuclear war. It's another pandemic. Um, weirdly, we got lucky with this last one. I mean, it could have been worse. Um, and uh, climate change are kind of the ones that that really that really <laughs> alarm me. Um, AI, I suppose, is out there, although it's like a little bit longer term term risk. Um, so you, you have that kind of list of scary things, but then you kind of also have this list of like, what's a good story? And we wanted to tell a mix of stories. Sometimes our heroes fail or their work is undone, but sometimes the heroes succeed. And we, we really wanted to pick stories about people who made a difference and kept trying. And so in the end, it ends up being less about the risk and, and, and more about the, the, the person who's got a good, compelling story um, that makes me want to get up in the morning and fight this fight all over again. Yeah, because we're in this place right now, especially with nuclear weapons, because that's the one I know the best, where uh, it feels pretty terrible. Um, We're coming off of 20 years of kind of drawdown where we were making great strides, where, you know, the physical material from nuclear weapons is being turned to electricity. Um, and it kind of everyone generally agreed that maybe this was all a bad idea. Um, we should keep enforcing these treaties. Uh, let's stop doing all of this. And now uh, North Korea has a nuclear weapon. Uh, China is building silos. Uh, it seems to be upping its uh, capacity. Uh, Russia and America are both talking about their fancy new nuclear weapons that they're building. Um, but we have to remember that there was a time, uh, when things were much worse, right? Well, and that's completely why we start where we do with the Mm -hmm. story of the scientists who go to the Soviet Union. Um, you know, the, the experiment was called the Black Sea Experiment, where they got on a, they got on a Soviet ship. Uh, called the Slava and, and did this measurement. And the whole idea is the, the germ of this idea gets planted in one of the coldest periods of the Cold War, uh, one of the most hopeless moments. And there are people who are still chipping away and things turn, right? You, you, you can get a couple of Soviet leaders drop dead and suddenly you have Gorbachev and what looks impossible and hopeless is in a matter of like 18 months, suddenly completely different. And so we wanted people to have that sense of, even though things seem really impossible, um, they've, they've seemed impossible in the past and you know, things happen like Vladimir Putin will die, right? We're, we're all going to die. He's going to drop dead one day. And, I'm not saying that that necessarily means magic happens and things get better. Um, but it, I think it is easy to see all the reasons you can't make progress right now mm-hmm. and project that out forever. Even though if we look back at history, we know that, you know, there are, there are ups and downs. So there will be opportunities. And we wanted really to be very explicit to people that part of the idea of the podcast, even though sometimes our heroes don't succeed, is that we we're always waiting for that moment where, where we can make a difference. Can you give me the context of the, the historical context of that first story? So I think it's very important because I think people, younger people will look around and say like, Oh, our relationship with Russia is so terrible right now. It's the worst it's ever been. 
Um, not quite. What, what was it like in the 1980s? Yeah, well, so we wrote this story I'm going to tell you out of the episode. It was originally there. But the reason I was so taken by this story is 1983 in particular was a terrifying year. I was eight years old. And mm-hmm. that's the year that the Soviet Union shot down a civilian airliner, the year that Ronald Reagan started calling them the evil empire. That's um, Able Archer is 83. Too, Able right? Archer is 83. Right. So, you know, generally this period is called the war scare of 1983, where relations just went in the toilet. And, you know, they went in the toilet for a lot of complicated reasons. And part of that was Reagan's rhetoric. Um, I think he, he came into office thinking he had to show that he was tough. Um, and he didn't quite realize how weak and vulnerable the Soviets felt at that point. And they were in their own kind of depths of their own paranoia. Um, and so things were really frightening to the point where, you know, that was, it was in the zeitgeist, you know, that's the year that the, the day after gets made. And so even as like an eight year old kid, I experienced that visceral terror. And I remember asking my dad who worked at a big, uh, industrial facility that like totally would have gotten nuked. Right. And I, I was like, you know, like if, if the Russians hit this factory. Like, are we all going to die? And my dad was like, oh, no, you know, their their missiles are very precise. And it was the first time I ever realized he was capable of lying to me. It's a fun thing to learn as an eight-year-old. Yeah. So, I mean, like, why? I, that's why I do what I do, right? I mean, that's some real childhood trauma right there. And And so it's that period where you don't have Gorbachev yet. You have this sclerotic paranoid, um, just terrifying Soviet leadership, which is acting out because they are convinced Reagan is this uh, lunatic, um, which, you know, like we've sort of forgotten in history, like how conservative he seemed at the time, because, you know, like it all turns out fine. But yeah. Well, in the you, you play this audio, which was a joke. I think you play it two or three times in the episode where he is joking about uh, outlawing the Soviet Union and nuking it. Yeah. And you can hear the giggle in his voice. My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin bombing in five minutes. But, like, that's kind of, that's pretty fucked up for a president to be doing, right? Yeah, I don't, you know, I think he just didn't realize, in part because he thought the problem was we were weak. Right? And I think the problem is he wanted to show we were tough. And he thought he was fixing a problem by being tough. And I, it was actually the opposite way around, which is the Soviets knew they were weak. And they imagined that he must know they were weak and that he was going to, like, prey on them. And so, like, this is like a horrific time. And in the middle of this, you have people who are going to the Soviet Union who are talking about trying to improve relations. And uh, one of the people we talked to, Frank von Hippel, um, you know, talks about meeting this guy, Evgeny Velikov. And at the time, Velikov is a, he's a, he's a famous scientist, but he's not a, it's not clear to anybody that he's a big deal. Uh, but he just happens to be a close advisor to an up and coming Politburo member named Mikhail Gorbachev. And so, you know, and Dropov and Chernyanko drop dead in quick succession. Suddenly Gorbachev is running the Soviet Union and he cares a lot about what Evgeny Velikov thinks. And Velikov is like, you know, 
we can do some stuff. And it opens up this incredible opportunity, which results in a bunch of people, including uh, Steve Fetter, who's on my dissertation committee. Steve Fetter is like a 20-something-year-old physics PhD sitting on a on a on a, a Russian ship next to a nuclear weapon with a gamma ray detector, which can't even imagine now, right? Yeah, like we can't. You know, there's no uh, there's no verifying, let alone trust, at the moment, right? That's right. So, just the idea that things can turn that quickly struck me as being really important. You know, the ugly code of that story, by the way, is that the ship, the Slava, gets renamed the Moskva. And it's now sitting at the bottom of the Black Sea because the Ukrainians quite rightly sunk it. Well, you know, uh, we've got our gamma radi, we've got our gamma detectors. We can probably find it, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, luckily sunk with no nuclear weapons aboard. But I do think the thing you say at the beginning, we do intend it as something that is uplifting. When I pitched the production team on the idea, um, they were so happy that the goal was not to be a downer. Well, there's so much downer in this, in all of these spaces right now, there is a feeling of that I've heard called odierism before where you are kind of overwhelmed by all of this information and people tell you how bad things are and like, Oh, you know, these treaties are, are eroding and the temperature is going to get, you know, so hot in the next few years. And, uh, the oceans, et cetera, et cetera. And all you can do when you are met with all this information is kind of say, Oh dear. Uh, and then just move on with your life. Um, and the problems feel so big that there's nothing you can do. And what the show shows is that a couple of key individuals trying to, uh, I won't, I don't want to say going around the government, but maybe not waiting for the government's permission, you know, sometimes going around the government, sometimes going around the government can reach out and make a difference and build relations, uh, with other people. Right. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we talk about is the episode on space debris, um, which is not really an existential threat, although, boy, it would suck if you had collisional cascading and suddenly couldn't use low Earth orbit. Um, The original paper, which is done by this guy named Kessler, which gives rise to this risk called Kessler syndrome, which if you've seen gravity, that's Kessler syndrome. He, He basically does that on his own time. You know, he's working for NASA and he's like, oh, this is a problem. Like, you know, like we should we should care about this. And, you know, like I find I have a lot of ideas and I I have this joke when you sometimes you have a good idea. It's too good to fund. You know, if you have a truly good idea, it, it, it can be so different and new. It's actually hard to get people to support it because you haven't yet done the work of explaining to people why this new idea is important. So, you know, sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need people who are, like, going to steal time from their employer or, um, you know, work to help us understand something that we don't. And it's, you know, we're not always going to get it right away, and maybe people won't necessarily even be grateful. Um, But it's the right thing to do. Let's stick with uh, space debris for a minute if we can. We just learned that uh, the DOD has got these new co- these new contracts where they're going to spend uh, a massive amount of money on specifically low Earth orbit satellites. Musk is one of the uh, the beneficiaries of this. But certainly, I think there's like 15 companies total, um, and a lot of Pentagon strategy in the near term is aimed at low Earth orbit and space. 
Uh, you know, Space Force is even talking about shooting shipping containers up into the sky and bringing them back down to different places, kind of rapidly deploy materials. How worried should we, like, how bad is this space to be, be sorry, we retake that. How bad is this space debris problem? So I think right now it's not yet bad. We can we can see all the ways it could get bad, but at the moment it's manageable. So this is one of those problems where, you know, like imagine you can go back in a time machine and it's like 1975 and you can be like, "Hey guys, maybe a little less carbon in the atmosphere." Just saying, you know, just get just get ahead of it. I I think it's still fundamentally doable but the trends are the kinds of trends that catch you up that catch up with you really quickly so just the amount of satellites in orbit is increasing really dramatically the number of countries placing things in orbit is increasing and so the potential for debris creation is starting to increase and we have seen a couple of debris incidents which are statistically extremely unlikely um which raises the question whether the models are exactly as accurate as we think we are right maybe we just got extremely unlucky maybe maybe that's you know (laughs) maybe might be a little worse than it is and we have countries who are getting really excited about blowing things up in space and so I think it's not yet bad. There is still time to make a difference. Um, but like we got to do it. And and the the thing I love about that episode is it's about um, uh, a, a group of people at the Secure World Foundation who spend all their time trying to convince governments that we need rules in space. But the best part about space is that there are no rules. You know, it is funny because there is this like, you know, techno libertarian impulse that causes people to love space. But the reality is his orbit is is a commons. Um, I know, and we can't use tragedy, the commons anymore, because now we you know realize that Garrett Hardin's a bad guy. Um, it's, it's like oh, always the Nazis who have the good idea. Right? <laughs> no idea if he's a Nazi or not, but like, whatever. He's, he's just a, you know, deeply, deeply problematic human. But but we do have this understanding that, you know, when you're in orbit, you know, orbit really is a condition. It's not a place. And the way I always say is, imagine if you could throw a ball so hard that it fell over the horizon, what would happen? Well, it would keep falling over the horizon in an endless loop. That's orbit. And so once things are in orbit, they're constantly moving and the orbital paths at different altitudes intersect one another. And so when you put something up into orbit, you're sharing that orbit with other satellites by other countries and so like if you can't really seize it you know it's not ground where you can say well this part's mine it's it's really a commons you can't build a base up there and defend it right guys right because it's gonna keep falling around the earth in orbit and it's gonna that path is gonna intersect intersect with you know the other guys you know orbital base and so you really have to have rules you know if if you don't and you start polluting those orbits then you pollute them for everyone and so you know the secure world people are like you know it's like very patient like it's like oh yeah space is a high ground well that's nice but it's not really ground and you know they sort of try to try to gently push people um and you know 
God love them, they do it through uh, partly through a UN process. So it's like, boy, patience of <laughs> saints. Very slow. Uh, it's funny. I, I was just did uh, a couple of other shows, kind of aimed at uh, the UN. Uh, is this is this thing still worth it? Is this still worth keeping around? Is it effective? Um, I think maybe militarily is one one thing one thing, and for space debris is a whole other, right? Although the two are increasingly intersecting. I mean, just in general, I, diplomacy is annoying, right? Like, there's a reason <laughs> that you know we that we like little kids play war. They don't they don't they don't play diplomat, right? Like, it's just it's not as it's not as satisfying and fun because you you might get a sustainable solution to your problem. But it's rarely like emotionally satisfying because you've had to agree with a bunch of people that you don't like to start with. Um, so I, I think that's a, a theme actually that comes through in a couple of episodes where, you know, you're, you're trying to make progress on these problems. And what you really want is like the Dirty Harry solution where you come in and just shoot the freaking bad guys. But it's like that's, you know, that's a movie that's not real life. Uh, yeah, I love on this note the the North building the windmills in North Korea episode. The the cultural differences are so extreme. Yeah, as them as they try to build these things. Uh, I think my favorite moment is um, when a worker is told that if they want to. Cl- you'll have to clean this up for me, but if, they, if we want to approve the like the electrical work, you have to pee on the live wire. Yeah, so there's this total cultural difference in how you ground wires which i i will admit i am not an electrical engineer and i don't understand but the north koreans wanted to do it in one way and the 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 americans although australian americans um it's a group you know they're they're like no that's unsafe and at one point it's like okay well if you think that's safe then go piss on the live wire <laughs> and then the north koreans like well you're talking about you know piss on live wires and it's like exactly um so it's just they you know they have to work through that stuff and there's so much um you know there's so much hostility that has nothing to do with the engineering that they have to work through just cultural and historical shit that they have to wade through in order to get to the simple question of how do you properly ground a wire for a wind turbine and i i i think that story is the thing i think i like most about that story even though it has a sort of unhappy ending is in america we tell the story of oh these americans go to north korea to build windmills we tell it in this kind of like you know, the Americans go and they they come to love the, you know, it's like a Hollywood, you know, I don't know, what is it, Hallmark Hallmark movie or something, right? Where mm-hmm. you like learn to love the little village in North Korea or something. But I actually think that what what was really happening there was there was a fight on the North Korean side. And there were North Koreans who were saying like, no, actually, we can learn to like the Americans, right? If we let them in, I can show you that this will work. And it, you know, it does work, but, you know, sadly, I don't think the rest of the North Koreans get the memo. Well, it was the North Korean that had reached out initially, right? Exactly. Like they kind of, yeah, they kind of start the whole conversation. Yeah, so I like that because it, I think we tend to look at the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans or the Iranians like they are a monolith. Mm-hmm. And the idea that they have their own politics and the idea that, like, 
yeah, okay, this guy is a drinking buddy of Kim Jong-il. So he's probably at some level a bad guy who profits off an unfair system. But just that openness to the idea of like, but you know, like maybe he maybe he is a partner in building a better world, right? Maybe he is an imperfect agent for trying to make things a little bit better. Um, I just, I find that, I find that really appealing because I, I, I think when we feel most hopeless, it's because we have lost sight of the fact that there are people on the other side who do want a different outcome. And, you know, just like we have our politics, they have theirs and they are waiting for the moment just like we are. Yeah. There's a great moment in what I would call episode zero, uh, your kind of prologue where a gentleman goes to buy some luggage in Iran. Yeah. My buddy, Max. What happened there? Ah, so my 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 buddy Max, who is the um, who's the the uh, head of the George and uh, Barbara Bush Foundation. Um, it's weird you make Republican friends when you're young; they turn out to be nice people. You don't lose them. Um, he Max is a really extraordinary character, and when things were really bad with Iran, he had that same sense that you know, well, we're just waiting for our opening, and. He was working for a, a private foundation at the time that funded a trip of some scientists to Iran uh, because he had this idea, which I think was correct, that if there was a constituency in Iran for a different relationship with the United States, it was likely going to be the scientific and technical community. And so he organizes this whole trip, but the the beautiful story that really comes out has nothing to do with the scientists. It's when he goes to buy a piece of luggage to bring it back home. And he, he's being a little cautious about it because, uh, Lindsay, his, his wife, she's a real firecracker. She's, she's one of, one of humanity's great humans. Um, but he knows he's going to get like a rashness of shit if he brings home a lousy suitcase. And so he starts talking to the guy who's going to sell him the suitcase. And the guy realizes he's American and he makes Max take the suitcase for free as this just human gift, right? Just this yearning to make this cross-cultural connection to make the world a little bit safer and better. And I just I think that's a beautiful story. And he literally says, I want Americans to know that not all we not all of the Iranians hate them, right? Yeah. It's I mean it's I think it's just it's incredibly moving because Again, we we can see our own politics, right? Like, I am well aware that there are people in the American political system who are assholes. Um, it becomes so easy to caricature us as being our worst elements. And it's so easy for us to caricature them as their worst elements. And so finding those people um, where you can and working with them when you can, um, you know, again, I, I, I know I keep saying it's inspiring. I needed to pick me up. And, you know, this podcast did it for me. What was the name of that podcast again? The Reason We're All Still Here. Thanks. I, uh, I, I got a little bit lazy there, didn't I? People are really into these long titles now. The first two seasons were The Deal. Yeah, it's like a thing. I was told, like, oh, no, no, we, we need a long title. And I was like, I don't know. That seems kind of crazy. And then I went to, I was in Oslo, and I went to the the uh, Nobel uh, Peace Prize display, and I forget what it's called now, but it also has like an insanely long title. Like, that's just it. 2023, year of the long title. It's weird. I usually associate like long uh, titles punctuated by like colons with video games, right? Yeah. Uh, 
And I guess it's it's come to podcasts finally. Yeah, you know. Uh, you know, Cyberpunk 2077 colon Phantom Liberty, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> try, so, try not to lose it here. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We are on with Jeffrey Lewis. Uh, one of the, um, one of the other, this is another episode I haven't listened to, but I know our audience will be very interested in, uh, has to do with nuclear waste and aliens, extraterrestrials. So this is our last episode. And to me, it is the perfect ending to the arc of the whole thing. And, you know, so much of this podcast, it, the reason we're all still here is organized around this idea of individuals who are not part of any government. And so we we tell these two stories that kind of intersect. And it's about problems that just government can't even think about. It's not that government can't or won't. It's just that it's mind-blowingly impossible. And so the first example is we meet an artist who gets roped into creating the golden record that goes on Voyager, right? Because this is one of those things like, who on earth can even think about like how you would communicate with an alien civilization? And and like government wants to do it, but you know, they, they have no idea how. And then having done that, he gets just dragged in. He becomes like one of these like futurists, um, there are a couple of futurists we we interview because the US is gonna bury waste from the nuclear weapons program at this facility in New Mexico. And one of the people we talk to sues them because they want to do it for like, they want to like plan for like a thousand years or something. And like nuclear waste is toxic, like way longer than that. And so he wins this court case and it's like, no, no, you have to plan for 10,000 years, which he wins. But then the Department of Energy is like, how do you even like, what, how do you put up a sign that's going to last 10,000 years. You know, like, what language do you put it in? Like, how do you literally think about this task of um, making this site safe for 10,000 years into the future? And what I love about that episode, and I'm, I'm, I'm spoiling it a little bit, you know, whatever, I love it. I just, I want to say how much I love what, what, the, what the writers did with it, is the whole episode, they seem like the dumbest people on Earth. Like, they are so not up to the task. They have the stupidest ideas. You know, like, oh, maybe we'll make it into an amusement park to draw attention to it, and we'll create a character. Or, uh, you know, they have this whole long discussion about, like, like 
would a skull and crossbones a thousand years from now, you know, still convey death? And I'm like, clearly, like, none of you have ever listened to a metal album, right? Like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? And like, they just seem so inadequate to the task. Oh, yeah. And it's like 25 guys and, and like one woman, right? Like, they just like, it's just so pathetic. And you you want to make fun of them. But there comes this moment where you realize that they're aware of how inadequate they are and that they understand in a way that I did not initially, that they're not going to answer this, but that this is a process, that they are doing the first set of answers, but that generation after generation after generation will have to return to this. And so like, you know, you get to the end and you're like, actually, the joke's on me. Because they're the people who showed up, who did their best, and even though it was flawed, and it's easy for us to laugh at it 30 years on, they're the people who understand that we are all part of a continuum of people who are doing their little bit to make the world better. So, like, I went from, like, laughing at them to, you know, kind of, like, you know, getting a little choked up that they were very conscious that they were not going to solve this problem, but they were really earnestly trying to make it just a little bit better until the next group of people could come along and do better than they could. Are these the people that came up with what is now a famous copy pasta on the internet? This is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed, esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing is nothing valued is here. Yeah. This comes out of that same process. Yes. Okay. Um, so, you know, it, it, I mean, it, again, it was so easy to make fun of and we did, we made fun of them privately, you know, and then, you know, later you're like, yeah, well, could you do better? And it's like, no, actually I couldn't. It's an impossible question to answer, right? It is. And so there is something just really beautiful about the attitude that they each brought to it, you know, um, just this, uh, relentless optimism, um, that, you know, they're going to do their part and then other people will come along and do their part. And so then I feel like a real asshole. Like, well, what am I doing my part? You know, it's like, oh. can I, uh, let's switch tracks just a little bit here towards the end. Uh, can I ask you about the live show? Oh my gosh. The live show was so much fun. You did it. You, it's already done. You've done it's it. It's done. You've- it's done. We did it at the green space. Not, not the color green, but, uh, I believe Jerome green is the person who gave the money that allowed, uh, WNYC, uh, in Soho to have a beautiful event space where we did a live recording. Uh, and it was, uh, we had a, we had a, a moderator, uh, Carl Nellis, who works with the Gilded, which is the production team. And then we had uh, the comedian, Nagin Farsad, and myself. And we talked about Dr. Strangelove as a documentary. Right. It's, it's fascinating because it's this famous comedy. But I would say that as a place to start, uh, if you kind of don't know anything about nuclear weapons and you want to understand at least how they worked back then, uh, and especially how command and control worked back then, uh, it's not a bad place to start. Not only is it not a bad place to start, I would argue it is the place to start. I mean, I have heard people in the biz jokingly call it the documentary because it 
it is in many profound respects accurate. But what I have always been struck by about it is how seriously Kubrick took understanding the thing he ended up mocking. And partly that's because they initially intended to make a serious movie. And what they, what Terry Southern and Stanley Kubrick realized as they were working on the script is that this was all ridiculous. And, and they began to find sincere arguments that people made funny because it was so outlandish when you really thought about what, what people were saying. And so to me, that was the epitome of the thing we were trying to get at with uh, this, uh, with the reason we're all still here, which is an outsider who takes seriously the discussion can see things that insiders don't see. That we don't always have to just assume that, you know, the smart people in the government have it under control because they have a perspective which is informed and valuable and should not be neglected, but which is also to some extent prisoner of, you know, imprisoned by circumstance. And so I, you know, I often tell people there are several really funny lines in Dr. Strange Love that are not jokes. They are real things that people actually said. And the only thing that's funny about them is the context. Yeah. I think the, this one is slightly off of topic of nukes, but I've always been fascinated by, uh, I can't remember his name, but the gentleman that kind of initiates everything, uh, is it General Ripper? Is that right? Yeah, General Ripper. Yeah. You got it. Is uh, terrified that his bodily essence has been polluted by fluoride, uh, and that he is no longer able to achieve uh, uh, satisfaction in the bedroom. This, you know, when you watch the movie, it's very funny and ridiculous. But this was a real thing that people believed and still believe that that the communists are using fluoride to pollute our bodily essence. This was a conspiracy theory, you know, uh, that the John Birch society loved. <laughs> and in the mid sixties, uh, everyone would have all, I don't know how much of a joke that would have been at the time. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, I mean, it's because it is unfamiliar to us. It doesn't land in the way that, you know, if he was a QAnon nut, it would have. Right. It is that same kind of thing, I think. I think those are kind of in the same realm. Oh, I I think that's a, it's a, it's probably a pretty direct line from one to the other. You know, I, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about conspiracy theorists, um, mostly because one of my great passions in life is epistemology, which is a weird thing to be psyched about. But I love this question. You know, we have this life and like, how do we know about this world that we're in so briefly? You know, to me, that just like, that's like a really wild question. Um, and some people just freaking lose it. And that was a real, I would say both that was a real conspiracy at the time, but also it really brings home an important idea that is central to the podcast, which is the people who are making decisions are still just people. And they don't necessarily know more than the rest of us. They're not necessarily smarter. They're not, they're certainly not wiser. 
And so there is a role for outsiders to come in to these discussions, even when they're not invited, because they're usually not. And and say, like, you know, like, you're doing this wrong, or like, you could do this better, or you're not trying in the way you should. And I, I you know, like, it's easy to caricature. I mean, that that's a funny, funny caricature. But like, we have seen senior generals say fucking insane shit. Um, yeah, I mean, go, go, go read any speech given by Curtis LeMay. Yeah, right? yeah. And uh, I mean, do you remember there was the guy? Uh, was his name? Was it Jerry Boykin who you know believed that there was a satanic presence over Somalia and he saw it in a cloud? But you know, and it's, it's like, no, I haven't heard that one. I'm gonna have to look that one up. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about. I mean, the thing about having. I have a pretty good memory, so the wild thing about getting old is I have experienced all this stuff in real time, and it kind of sticks with me, and it doesn't feel like it's that long ago. Yeah. But I often find myself talking about things that happened 20 or 30 years ago. And to me, like, that's still the present, right? Because that's my adult life. Um, and so I, you know, if I had been around back in Strange Love, I'm sure it would not feel any different to me um, than the present does. Because, you know, time is a flat disc. <laughs> Have you read this? This is a bit of a tangent. Have you read the new, uh, there's a Colin Dickey book, uh, Under the Eye of Power. It's about conspiracy theories. No. But that sounds think, right up my alley. I think you'd like it. It's specifically focused on America. And his thesis is that um, rather than being an aberration, things like Salem uh, and now QAnon are part of the fabric of America. Uh, there's more of them. There's there's more of these things running through our politics than people would like to admit. We kind of look at McCarthyism and Salem as these aberrations. Uh, but actually, it's just part of how our democracy works. Uh, and he kind of goes through the history of it. And it's pretty fascinating. I, I have no trouble believing that. I grew up in rural Illinois in the midst of the 1980s satanic panic. Yeah. And that's uh, definitely uh, there. And it's amusing. He, he he kind of charts a through line between that and obviously QAnon now, which is kind of a variation of the same thing. Um, and then anti-Catholic panics in the 19th century which are also very, very similar. Uh, we've always been kind of afraid of uh, foreign influences, whether that be spiritual or actually foreign influences, uh, corrupting women and children in this I, country. I was prohibited from watching MTV and playing Dungeons and Dragons. I couldn't play Dungeons and Dragons either. I could, <laughs> I could play a much worse game called Vampire the Masquerade because it didn't have a, because uh, there was no 2020 episode about how it would lead me to Satanism. <laughs> There's also a generalized anxiety in my house about black t-shirts, which really? I now own a bunch of. Yeah, I don't know. It was <laughs> like, like, I was like, uh, I guess a hop, skip, and a jump from a black t-shirt to Ozzy Osbourne and Satanism or something. I don't know. Who knows? I, I mean, guess you're, I could you're... ask my parents, but then I'd have to talk to them about this stuff, which does anybody really want to do? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I mean, at this point, I think... Everyone's parents did the best they can. Do we really want to interrogate them over why we weren't allowed to watch Dungeons and or play Dungeons and Dragons? I I think that's the that's the healthy, well-adjusted attitude. Yeah, they did yeah. the best they can, and uh, you know, my 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 oldest son has long hair, wears black t-shirts, and definitely plays Dungeons and Dragons. And as far as I can tell, has yet to conjure up a satanic being in our home. Uh, well, we'll keep, we'll have you back on the show should 
he conjure up a satanic being in your home. I'm very excited to hear about it. I'll, I'll email you right away. Excellent. Can I ask you about some current event stuff here before I let you go? Oh, yeah. All right. So a lot of stuff going on world <laughs> all the time. Obviously, <laughs> things always, they be happening. Um, first, uh, I think I first heard about this stuff from you. Uh, China, building new nuclear weapons. How concerned are you? I'm moderately concerned. Um, you know, we're looking at a pretty substantial expansion in the number of Chinese nuclear weapons. Um, I still think they're fundamentally worried about being able to retaliate if they're hit first. It's just that their requirements for doing that are going up. So Right. It's the uh, Give us the numbers, because I think that that's really, really important. Yeah, they were, you know, they were kicking around at like, you know, a hundred. And, and of that a hundred, not all of them could reach the U.S. And they kind of got up to about a hundred that could reach the U.S. The U.S. is at, you know, 1550 by treaty, which in real numbers is like 1700. Mm-hmm. And so the Chinese were always like kind of focused on if the U.S., took a poke at them, making sure that they had a, a survivable enough deterrent that they'd be able to inflict some damage back. And my guess is, now that they're richer and more technologically advanced, like, you know, they just have a bigger budget. And like, okay, we could go bigger. Um, the problem, though, is when you when your number shoots up, there's this interaction that happens. And, you know, we freak out, and then they freak out, and suddenly it's an arms race. So I'm, I'm kind of worried about things going off the rails over the long run. Um, but I don't, like, I don't think China is Russia, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does completely. Let's talk about Russia then. Boy. And its nuclear weapons. Yeah, so that that is, you know, what really alarms me there, obviously the first thing is the level of insecurity that the Russians are acting on, right? Like, I think they invade Ukraine because Putin genuinely believes he can only be secure if he dominates his neighbors, which, you know, is not great. I think they really believe that they're entitled to this sphere of influence and that their nuclear weapons help do it, which is why we see them making so many references to their nuclear forces. And I'm, you know, I'm not so, I don't think they're suicidal. I don't think Putin's suicidal. Like uh, my friend Aaron Stein loves to note that like, if you see, he, he had a meeting with some Aeroflot stewardesses and like this was the only exception to the like sitting at the one end of the long table was when the Aeroflot stewardesses came in and then it was suddenly like, you know, sit on uncle Volodya's lap. Um, this is a man who still loves life, but the paranoia is what freaks me out. And especially like, have you ever talked to Russians about like how they think of AI? No, actually oh, they are like all about integrating AI into decision-making about nuclear weapons, which I just, okay. like, right, that's let, a bad freaking idea. Yeah, okay, this is, let's focus on this, actually, because I've got to, you, you, you kicked a hornet's nest, unfortunately. Because um, I was at, I can't remember what conference I was at uh, in D.C. recently, di- uh, obviously, uh, digitally, uh, but there was a lot of people talking about the fear of integrating command and control with artificial intelligence, um, and I asked the question, and nobody answered me, uh, like, who is actually talking about this? What would it actually look like? It sounds like the Russians are talking about it and maybe have an idea of what it would look like. Yeah. So, you know, they're still pretty vague. 
But the examples I have seen both uh, among uh, AI enthusiasts, and I see them sort of slightly reflected in ideas I, 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 I see Russians express, is it's almost like, you know, you would take your um, um, probably like AGI, right? Like, and you would have it read a bunch of shelling, you know, mm-hmm. read a bunch of Tom Schelling, and then you would have your AI Tom Schelling advisor who would be telling you what to do. And the problem with that, right? So they would imagine it, I think, as like decision support. The problem with that is that is a confirmation bias machine. Yeah. And Lord knows what you're going to train that thing on. And I think we all have this implicit idea that like we talk one way about nuclear weapons, but like we don't really mean it. You know, like in the actual moment, we'll all step back, even though we say we won't. We're all kind of bluffing. The AI does not know that, right? The AI is going to just do it. And I, I worry that leaders, like this sounds absolutely insane. I had a huge argument at a conference with a guy who was like, oh yeah, no, leaders are going to rely on like AI advisors because you're going to get the best advice. And I'm like, okay, that's nuts. They would never do that. And then I started thinking about like people in driving apps. Like, do you know people who rely so much on their driving app now that they can't actually navigate without it? Or, and they, they make the turn that is obviously going to take them in the wrong direction simply because the the program told them to? Yeah, so it turns out there's really compelling social science evidence that people lose their ability to think critically about driving when they become heavily reliant on the apps. They they just seed that portion of their brain to the app and they just they they it degrades and they lose it. And then if you take the app away, they're totally lost. So I, I worry about world leaders who become infatuated with these technologies and then become reliant on them. And I you know I think it's not a near-term problem because it's pretty hard to imagine, you know, that an 80 year old Joe Biden, like really like getting into his AI advisor, you know, but you could imagine a much younger, dumber person doing that. I mean, like you, if you told me that Elon Musk was making decisions about Twitter using an AI advisor, I would say a can't be any dumber than he actually is. And B like, it would not even surprise me in the least. I have this nightmare image now of uh, someone training a large language model on the the written and spoken works of Henry Kissinger. Yes, uh, and then and then using that, like uh, keeping keeping some sort of some ersatz version of him alive forever to give you to give yes. you geopolitical advice, right? Yes. So there's that, um, and then you know there's the potential that, given what American politics are like. I mean, I can't. I can absolutely imagine uh, Mike Pence of twenty years from now saying, "You know, the only AI I use is trained exclusively on the Bible." You know, and then you're like, uh, "Which edition?" <laughs> Ask it about the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> to come to to get before we spiral out into fear. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this which was supposed not, to be about the podcast, The Reason We're All Still Here, which is about the people who are making this stuff better. Yes, I think that 
uh, like large language models, uh, general, generative adversarial networks, all this AI stuff is going to be around. It's going to have a use. It's not going to be like NFTs or crypto, where uh, there's a there's a big hype cycle around it and then it kind of falls flat. I think that we are going to find uses for this stuff, but I am hopeful that uh, when the rubber meets the road, um, a lot of this stuff is going to be less useful for things like this than people are expecting. Um, and I, I think we will see that play out. And maybe uh, it is going to take someone to reach out and make those personal connections uh, the way that people do in the reason we're all still here. Wow. That's just that is that is the perfect that is the perfect take in a sound. That's why they that's why they pay me the medium bucks here at Vice. Jeffrey Lewis, where can people find the podcast? You can find it on Apple Podcasts or really any place that you get fine podcasts. Thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through all of this. My pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> <laughs>